In the late 60s, one man imagined creating a place that would radically undermine the societal values of his time, an alternative space that subverted color lines, gender norms, and war. That man was Fred Rogers, and that place was Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. You're listening to Won't You Be My Neighbor, composed by Fred Rogers and performed by the music director for the Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and live in-house jazz pianist for every show, Johnny Costa. All of our music this hour will come from the mind of Rogers and the hands of Costa. Today's show is What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Mr. Rogers. Fred Rogers was a complex iconoclast, a television host that hated most television, a soft-spoken Presbyterian minister who purposefully addressed thorny topics others wouldn't touch, a broadcaster who insisted on speaking as if to a single child watching in his living room. We're joined today by Michael Long, author of the 2015 book, Peaceful Neighbor, Discovering the Countercultural Mr. Rogers. Long is an associate professor of religious studies and peace and conflict studies at Elizabethtown College in Pennsylvania, and is the author or editor of several books on civil rights, religion, and politics, including Beyond Home Plate, Jackie Robinson on Life After Baseball, and I Must Resist, Bayard Rustin's Life in Letters. Roger's style was subtle, but his politics radical. Long recalls that in 1968, the Vietnam War raging, he devoted his show's first week being nationally broadcast to conflict, telling children, war isn't nice. What can we learn from Fred Rogers and his work? How do we make use of his impact on the culture and on many of our young lives, rather than simply beatifying him, and thus setting him on the pedestal of the improbable, the inimitable, the irrelevant. We'll start by looking at Rogers, the flawed human being, and the idiosyncratic personal, academic, and theological roots that catalyze some of his most fundamental beliefs. And now, what's so funny about peace, love, and Mr. Rogers, tonight on Interchange. Obviously, uh, I come to you as much because Mr. Rogers is in the news. Why do you think there's a resurgence of Fred Rogers' interest, uh, other than, I guess, the, the new documentary? Is that it, or is there something else going on? Well, the new documentary certainly helps. But then the deeper question is, well, why did Morgan Neville decide to write a uh, screenplay for the documentary, right? Mm -hmm. And I think part of it is because we live such an, in such violent times mm. and it's such a chaotic world. Is this new? I don't think it's new, but uh, people are looking for new, fresh resources. And certainly Fred Rogers is an untapped resource in terms of uh, trying to figure out what to do in this violent, chaotic world. And so he comes up again and again. And I think part of what's fueling this, Doug, is 
the internet clips of Fred Rogers mm. that you can find again and again in your Facebook feed and on YouTube and elsewhere. They're pervasive. Mm. Hmm. Well, that's pretty interesting. I never really thought of that. Uh, YouTube, the purview of my children and, and videos I don't want them to watch. I, <laughs> I, right. need, I need to push right. them towards Fred Rogers videos. Right. Now, um, uh, let me ask a, a quick question. Uh, if it matters that Fred Rogers came from wealth, I think you say it had, had an all-around bourgeois life uh, in uh, growing up in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, and wintering in Florida, things like that. Does that matter to Fred Rogers or to how we see Fred Rogers? Yeah, so I think it matters. I think it matters in a couple of different ways. One, uh, he, he was especially sensitive to people who didn't share his wealth, and he saw that in his hometown. He saw it through his mother's work in her local parish in terms of feeding those who were hungry, especially the elderly. Uh, he thought that she was the first Meals on Wheels in Latrobe, where he grew up, in the biggest house in the town. Uh, I also think it made him a bit insensitive when dealing with his employees. Hmm. Uh, some of them, for example, Betty Aberlin felt that they weren't paid enough, and, and during the holiday season when they were hoping for uh, maybe a financial lift. Uh, he would give them cards saying that he was donating to certain causes instead of giving them a gift. Uh, so they had a sense, or at least she had a sense, that he was a bit insensitive in terms of their financial needs. Uh, did it affect him in, in terms of developing his programs? Yeah, I think so as well. If you look at the neighborhood itself, uh, you don't see any poverty there. It's a very modest neighborhood. He lives in a small house, which was unlike the house he lived in. So I think he was a bit sensitive about that. He certainly didn't uh, mirror his own house in the neighborhood of make-believe. And, and when people came to film him at home in Pittsburgh, he was very sensitive uh, of their showing his wealth. Uh, he lived in Squirrel Hill, a very rich neighborhood outside of Pittsburgh, while he was filming most of his program. And he was wary of people showing the wealth that he enjoyed hmm. and inherited, I should say. Right. You, you, do, you do trace his wealth. Obviously, it, it came from, from his father or grandfather as well. Right. Um, let's, let me ask, uh, since we're, we're in this place right out of the gate, um, it's easy to like Fred Rogers. It's easy to also make fun of Fred Rogers. I, I'd like to understand some of what you would you might call some deeper critiques of Fred Rogers before we go into what I think is, uh, you know, the depth and profundity of a lot of what he did. But what are the critiques out there against Fred Rogers or against this particular uh, version of being good and helping? Well, what are the critiques from the conservative side is that Rogers uh, focused more on building self-esteem than anything else. And by doing so, he really created a generation of kids who thought very highly of themselves, especially when they shouldn't have, and were pampered. Uh, so that's probably the big one that's come out mm. uh, since the 1980s. Uh, another criticism is that he was just too sentimental. Mm. Um, he, w he focused on feelings uh, rather than politics. And for those who were on the left, uh, he was not somebody who marched. Uh, he was not somebody who grabbed a picket. He was also criticized on Saturday Night Live and by comedians, uh, especially because he had an effeminate way about him. And I think comedians uh, depicted him as not only a sissy, but as somebody not to take serious. And that hurt Fred's feelings. Mm. Uh, and he said as much as well. 
Yeah, um, those make sense. Uh, but they are, um, as I'm sure you know, they're very shallow critiques, of course. So, um, but I, I would, uh, let me, let me ask you to, to focus a little bit on, uh, I think you already mentioned, uh, Betty Aberlin. She was critical of, of Fred frequently, right? Throughout your book, it's Betty Aberlin who offers a critical note frequently. It is. Um, they had creative differences. There's no doubt about that. And Betty Aberlin to this day, is politically radical. Uh, she's on the far left of many social and cultural and political issues. And unlike Fred, uh, she is somebody who grabs a bullhorn. And during the Persian Gulf War, for example, uh, she was out on the streets marching and writing letters, carrying pickets. And she encouraged Fred to do the same. In fact, she was very disappointed that Fred did not join her and taking a very public stance against the Persian Gulf War. And she wrote him a letter criticizing him. And she wrote other leaders' letters as well, criticizing Fred. And she was especially disappointed that he didn't rebroadcast this particular series that he showed in 1983 that was on conflict. And the series is really moving. It's, a, it's an incredible series. And it, and it talks about the importance of fighting violence. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking... This machine doesn't write anything by itself. It just writes what people make it write. That's the way it is with machines. It's the people who make them work that are the important part. People can make machines do helpful things, or they can make them do harmful things. I guess you know how important I think people are. When we start thinking about everything in the world, it's the people who are the most important part of all. And she really wanted him to show that during the Persian Gulf War. And according to her, Fred refused to do that. Mm. So, yeah, she criticized him on that. She also criticized his uh, bourgeois tendency to avoid class issues at certain points, mm-hmm. especially those class differences between him and the rest of the cats. <laughs> right. Yeah. right, right, and those were There was a big chasm there, too, Doug. Okay, well, that is interesting, and it is um it's it seems baked into the cake there uh in terms of even how the um the show is um set up with the hierarchy of the kingdom and having to work within those those particular structures um right. uh ripe for the attacking right It would be an easy way to try to crumble the kingdom's walls in some ways if 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 Fred Rogers had been more class conscious, i suppose. Oh, absolutely. On the other hand, King Friday, mm-hmm. who enjoys wealth in the neighborhood, often appears bumbling. And <laughs> right. Well, that is true. That is true. He's often wrong as well. That is true. You know, what's interesting about Fred's work is that he sets the king up to fail. Mm-hmm. He really does. And he builds in descent into the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lady Aberland is one of the key players in descent, political descent, social unrest right. in the neighborhood. Uh, so he builds a descent and really he focuses on descent as the key, as the key play mm-hmm. in the neighborhood of Maple Leaf. Mm-hmm. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Mr. Rogers with guest Michael Long, author of the 2015 book Peaceful Neighbor. Discovering the Countercultural Mr. Rogers. Well, 
while we're on women who have powerful influences in, uh, in Fred Rogers' uh, life, let's let's move to um, I think Margaret McFarland is her name. You mentioned that mm-hmm. Margaret McFarland is a is a critical in in shaping the show as well. Yeah, Margaret McFarland was Fred's mentor at the University of Pittsburgh in terms of a child development. And she and Fred would have weekly meetings throughout the time he was developing his program to discuss the programs from the perspective of a child of child development. But yeah, Rogers was deeply steeped in schools of child development. Uh, he considered himself, I think, to be an informal expert in child development and psychology. And in fact, you can see uh, Freudian angles in his work, especially in his work on anger and channeling anger, mm-hmm. especially when talking about violence in his program was to try to help children channel their anger in a constructive ways. Mm-hmm. And this was classic Freud, right? Rogers, like Freud, didn't believe it was possible for us to suppress or eliminate our, our anger. He, Rogers thought that we had vi- what he called violence within us. Mm-hmm. This violence within us would always be there. But the challenge was for us to channel that violence into constructive, helpful, uh, beneficial ways, mm-hmm. not only to us individually, but to our communities as well. Mm-hmm. So Roger's whole program, I believe, is devoted to, to Freudian channeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is something that he learned in concert with Margaret McFarland. I don't, th- I don't think you mention Winnicott in the book, um, but it's, uh, p- perhaps Winnicott makes sense here as well in terms of good enough mothering or good enough parenting or trying to find ways in which, uh, you're not um, you know, in a judgmental space most of the, most of the time. Yeah, I mean, you don't find that exactly and uh, in detail in Rogers' mm-hmm. writings, but you can find him encouraging parents always to assume a non-judgmental mm-hmm. stance. Mm-hmm. Oh, do I want to say that? No, and this <laughs> is one of the. No, I, I don't because this is one of the problems. This is one of the myths about Fred Rogers. Mm-hmm. Fred Rogers was judgmental. Mm. I mean, that's why he had his program. He thought TV, mm-hmm. as he saw it, was insufficient for helping children grow. And he also, ex- he also took this judgmental stance against parenting in his day. Mm. Uh, on the one hand, he wanted children to know that he liked them just as they were, right? Mm-hmm. This is the classic Rogers line. But on the other hand, he did his program. He developed his program because he thought that they really needed to grow in ways that he thought mm-hmm. they needed to grow, not in ways that many others, especially wider society, with its values that ran contrary to Rogers, right. I taught them. Mm. So it's just not true that Rogers was non-judgmental. Mm-hmm. I think he's in many ways dug fiercely judgmental, and that's why he had his program, and that's why he taught children the way he, he did. Mm. In fact, he developed this whole countercultural neighborhood in order to teach children that the values that they were learning in wider society were problematic, wrong, not to be followed. Hmm. Well, that's a good way to, to walk into some of those values, too, then. Mm-hmm. So, uh, obviously, let's talk a little bit about uh, faith. Uh, Fred Rogers was a deeply religious man. Uh, and, if, as, again, as far as I can tell, um, God, in many respects, is love, literally, 
for Fred mm-hmm. Rogers. Um, and there are obviously many ways to deal with that or ways to think about that. But your book does a nice job of, of sort of giving other names to God or God and love. Uh, there's advocacy and acceptance and things of this nature. So tell us a little bit about uh, what, uh, what religion was or what faith was uh, to Fred Rogers. Yeah, so Rogers grew up in a Presbyterian church in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. I think it was your typical Presbyterian church, and Presbyterians in general uh, are not pacifists. Uh, they're not uh, people who always preach God of love. Uh, but Fred Rogers, he developed a theology of radical acceptance. Mm-hmm. God was a being who radically accepted us, no matter what we did and no matter what we said. And this God was not, in the typical Protestant uh, hymn, immortal, invisible, God only wise. This uh, a God that's out there somewhere in the heavens, who's impenetrable. This is a God who resides within us. And so, you know, officially, Rogers was a Presbyterian. He was a Presbyterian minister. He was ordained in 1962 uh, to work in the medium of television for children and families. But unofficially, I think that he was he was a Quaker. He was somebody who, in many ways, followed the teachings of George Fox. Uh, somebody who saw the light, who, who saw God as a divine spark within us, mm-hmm. as a light within us. And it was our challenge in Rogers' theology to use this spark within us to mirror God's ways of acceptance and mm-hmm. to accept others just as they are to help them grow and to help and to join them in building a community in which radical acceptance and growth are hallmark measures. Mm. It was uh, really uh, uh, fascinating to read the, I guess, read that God grows too, which actually struck me as interesting in terms of, it's, it's funny, and, and, and plausibly this has no actual connection, but um, you've been doing shows on the Constitution, Second Amendment, things of this mm-hmm. nature, and we, all, we often talk about originalism, right? Right. And it's the same kind of attitude, it sounds like yes. to me, you know, if you believe in the original being called God, yeah. right, that, that started at this point and is narrated at, in a certain way, and that God has to stay that God. Uh, so, so Rogers is against the originalism of God in some sense. Yeah, that's an excellent connection though, that I've never quite made myself. But yeah, he's a, he is not an originalist in mm-hmm. his theology. Nevertheless, he had to struggle with this God of the Hebrew Scriptures, who is quite the holy warrior, mm-hmm. you know, uh, who is doing horrible, horrific things. And so Roger struggles with this, and he writes uh, that God evolves, that God changes, that God grows, and that God has, in Roger's thinking, grown away from those violent ways and has revealed God's self and this Prince of Peace that we read about in the New Testament, somebody who encourages us to forgive, mm-hmm. to love our enemies. And so for, for Rogers, God has almost transformed God's own being through the years, and encourages us to do the same as we move from violence to peace. Mm-hmm. It's you I like. It's not the things you wear. It's not the way you do your hair. It's time for a break. You're listening to It's You I Like, another one from Fred Rogers. In 1990, Rogers and his production company, Family Communications, Inc., sued the Ku Klux Klan for imitating the music from his show and mimicking Rogers' speech patterns on tape-recorded phone messages targeted at youth in the Kansas City area, 
that were blatantly racist and anti-gay. He won. Stay with us for more on The Gentle Dissidence of Fred Rogers when Interchange returns on WFHB. Your skin, your eyes, your feelings, whether old or new, I hope that you'll remember even when you're feeling blue that it's you I like, it's you yourself, it's you, it's you I like. back. I'm Doug Storm and this is Interchange. Today we're talking about the ways Fred Rogers spoke truth to power in the calmest, kindest way via his program, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. In our next segment, we talk with Michael Long about the subtle politics of Fred Rogers, who created an alternative television world for children in the late 60s in which women have an equal voice, the local police officer is black and sings opera, and the only power structure is a king who is quick to err but has ears to hear, a bumbler who learns from his mistakes by being receptive to counsel from all quarters. Let's talk politics and, and peace. And I think the the key takeaway from me and, and what actually made me, it's maybe odd to say this, but excited to watch some Rogers episodes was because of the way you cast them politically, the way that you, you know, you situate them in time and give them as responses to the world going on around us and not necessarily, uh, one of my favorite words you use throughout actually is subtle. Oh, so see, that's a key term for you in this book is that Roger's responses are subtle. So let's, let's talk a little bit about how, uh, Fred Rogers is political. And you already mentioned, uh, the conflict week. So did you want to start there? We can talk about that particular series. Well, let me start by talking about, um, the ways I detest the internet clips of Fred Rogers. <laughs> okay. That's a good idea. <laughs> sure. Go ahead. I detest most of them because they're <laughs> a historical. You know, they're sure. just sort of abstract. Like all things on the internet, it seems that way, right? Everything right. is kind of ripped out of its its context. Right, ripped out of its context. And I th- I, and, but if you place them in their historical context, which is the only way to understand them, the episodes, almost all of them, are deeply political. Mm-hmm. And it's almost repulsive for some people, I think, to, to think of Rogers as political. He doesn't appear political, mm-hmm. does he? I mean, he wears his mother's sweaters and he wears uh, soft sneakers and he speaks in a soft voice. But if you dig at these programs, they're deeply political, starting with that first week in 1968 when Mr. Rogers went national. Mm. Uh, in that first week, uh, the Vietnam War is raging, mm-hmm. right? 1968, and Rogers devotes the week of programming to spreading words about 
peace and how important it is. And he says in the program, believe it or not, he says these words, he says, war isn't nice. Mm -hmm. Tell me that's not political. <laughs> right, sure. In yeah. the first week of his program. Yeah, shocking, right? I was like, wow, that's he just he just went out there and did it. He just just the Vietnam War, didn't <laughs> right. he? And all those who supported right. it. And this is in six days before the peace movement really found mm -hmm. its legs, right? Now which country do you think this is, class? With the mountain and everything. I think it looks like up above land, Miss Cow. You're absolutely right, Daniel. Now what about this one? What could that be? Um, I think that's from Down Underland. Yes, Anna, it used to be Down Underland, but not anymore. Oh, I know, I know. Yes, Prince Tuesday? That's the one that had the war with Sidestep Land. So now everything from Down Underland is in with Sidestep Land. That is correct. Mm -hmm. I'm glad I didn't live there. I am too. I wouldn't like to live where they're having a war. We've never had a war here in make-believe, have we? No, not that I know of. There's no mention of war in this neighborhood in any of the history books. We've had fights when people get angry about things. Oh, sure. Well, everybody has those, Anna. But we don't have fights with guns and bombs and stuff here. That kind of thing must be awful. Mm -hmm. But what if you win? You get to take everything the losers have. That wouldn't be nice. No, it wouldn't. And war isn't nice. We've been very fortunate here in this neighborhood of make-believe not to have any wars. So Rogers is in some ways a pioneer. Uh, in terms of advocating for peace on television during the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, so shortly after that as well, uh, he develops programs that, and I, I hope I'm not blurring too much here, Doug, but he develops programs about racial justice. Mm -hmm. In 1968, uh, King is assassinated, and before that, uh, the civil rights movement is continuing on full force, and Rogers... I develops a week of programs in 1968 to racial issues. And in these programs, he welcomes Mrs. Saunders, an African-American teacher in the neighborhood, and her interracial uh, student group mm -hmm. of students to his house in the neighborhood. Well, what's the message there? The message is that, well, maybe in society you'll see that schools are segregated and you don't live with African-Americans and African-Americans Americans don't live with you. But in the neighborhood, damn it, we live together, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. play together, we study together. Fascinating stuff. <laughs> Shortly after King's assassination, uh, riots erupt throughout the United States, right? Over 100 cities uh, engage in rioting. Rioting, uprising might be another word. And Fred Rogers looks at this and he knows it's troubling that children are seeing these images flooding into their uh, homes, images of African-Americans uh, engaging in riotous behavior. And so what he does is something radical too, politically radical, socially radical, culturally radical. He develops a character who's called Officer Clemens. Mm -hmm. And Officer Clemens is an African-American police officer in the neighborhood. Wow. This isn't a rioting African-American. This is a police officer who happens to be African-American. There are many ways to say I love you. There are many ways to say I care about you. Many ways, many ways, many ways to say 
the singing way to say I love you. There's the singing something someone really likes to hear. The singing way, the singing way, the singing way to say I love you. Uh, a police officer, I'm using the word loosely because he usually sings. He doesn't do a lot of uh, disciplining. But there you go. There's a new radical image in the neighborhood. Yeah, his uh, program is very political. And I'm just talking about 1968 here, Doug. <laughs> right. Is it pretty consistent that you think uh, Fred Rogers spent the, the bulk, if not all, of his uh, energies? You sort of just generally, as you say, combating the world as it is. In, in an attempt to create a world in which you could uh, live like uh, the, the kingdom of make-believe, live in a world in which you talked and dealt with things in a particular way, that everything then becomes a radical response against the nature of the world he was living in via television in particular. Television takes over um, and and how we, we see the world, his daily effort against the world as it is, or the world as it's depicted, and how we model those things. Right. In my interpretation, and I and I, I leave it up to the readers and, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. the hearers here, your audience, to, to figure out whether it's right or not, is that Rogers devoted his program to creating an alternative polis, right? Mm -hmm. An alternative political society. And it's alternative and radically this way. A wider society taught children that war was okay the neighborhood of make-believe did not mm -hmm. well wider society taught children that segregation racial segregation was okay the neighborhood of make-believe did not well wider society taught that it was okay for women uh, not to be paid as much as men and not to have the same types of jobs uh, not to assume leadership roles in important companies the neighborhood taught that women could do exactly that mm -hmm. Uh, well, the neighborhood, well, the wider society taught that oh, it was okay to litter, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it was okay to keep animals outside. It was okay to eat meat. <laughs> uh, Rogers used his program to embrace vegetarianism, to show the importance of caring for animals, and to talk about the importance of caring for the environment as well. What we get in this program is an entire policy devoted to undermining wider society and its values. It's absolutely breathtaking to me, even when I hear this anew. <laughs> it is, because he does appear so savvy. He does appear so sentimental. Who's the famous folk artist who, who called him sappy and sentimental? Pete Seeger. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. He thought Rogers was far too sappy and sentimental. Uh, and and uh, Johnny Carson made fun of him all the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh all major, major comedians made fun of him all the time. But, you know, that's because they didn't understand him. And again, as I said before, he was hurt deeply. I want to mention another story here, Doug. Sure. And I think it's really the root of his program and the root of creating this alternative policy. When Rogers was just a little kid and growing up in Latrobe, uh, he was overly protected by his parents. Uh, this is a time when uh, Lindbergh's baby was kidnapped. Mm. Remember that? Mm -hmm. Wealthy parents thought, wow, same might happen to my kids. And Roger's parents apparently thought that. And so they were overprotective of, of Fred. And they had their show for, they, they had a, a young man who lived with them, George Allen, an African-American man, uh, drive Fred back and forth to school. It was public school. 
but they had him chauffeur back and forth to school. And one day, uh, George can't make it. And Fred, Fred has to walk home by himself. And he does, and he's scared to death. He's scared to death because uh, he thinks, and this is what happened, some boys begin to chase him. Some local boy thugs, boys in the neighborhood. They chase him down the street, and they're, they're yelling, Fat Freddy, hey, Fat Freddy, we're going to get you. And Fred is just scared to death. He's, he's overweight. He can't run fast. Uh, and he's scared these boys are going to pounce on him and pound him. Uh, but he escapes somehow, and he runs into his neighbor's home, uh, a place of safe refuge. And there, the adults tell him, never to mind those kids. Uh, they don't know what they're talking about. And in that moment, Fred said, in, in recalling this moment, Fred says, but I really did resent those kids. Mm-hmm. I resented them. I was angry at them. And I was really upset that they couldn't see beyond my fatness, that they couldn't see who I was inside. And this story stuck with Fred, and he told it a lot to audiences who came to hear him speak and to friends who sat down with him. And the story is so powerful, I believe, because his program is in response to that uh, painful story. So what does he do in his program? Well, his program comes out of uh, his, the- his thinking that and this is what he got from The Little Prince, a book. Uh, that was one of his favorites as a child. What is most essential is invisible to the eye. What is most essential is invisible to the eye. Mm-hmm. And what Fred was upset uh, about when he dealt with these little thugs in the neighborhood is that they couldn't see what was essential in his life, what was essential to his core. And what was essential is that he was lovable and capable of loving. They couldn't see that. It was invisible to them, Fred thought. And he was really upset about that. So he develops his whole program which includes this alternative policy as a way of responding to that event and making sure that children knew that was what was most important about them was not what was visible to everybody else, how they looked, how they appeared, the weight, their height, but what was essential to them. And what was essential to them was that they were lovable and capable of loving. And it's that, those two things, that created the foundation for this alternative policy that he created in the neighborhood of Make Believe. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Mr. Rogers with guest Michael Long, author of the 2015 book Peaceful Neighbor Discovering the Countercultural Mr. Rogers. Well, the uh, the alternative is an interesting one because I think, again, it models a way in which uh, I guess you're experiencing similar aspects of life. I think it's uh, what what fascinated me about thinking about it was was the way it was conversational, the way it was it, that it that its focus was. Here is an issue, you know, you present an issue again, the, like the conflict where, uh, at the beginning, uh, where the king is, is worried that things are changing and he wants to put up a fence and, and, uh, but 
you know, so that's a response we understand. It's a response we see all the time. It's a response we're, we're constantly confronted these days or all the time. I suppose it's funny that we often think about these things are happening that are strange and new and weird that there's this intense, intense uh, drive towards keeping immigrants out or, uh, that these things are new. They're, of course, not <laughs> new. Uh, but maybe the way that they're presented has become uh, more scary to people. But here is this, uh, this program itself that actually deals with this. There are border guards. He wants to build a fence, you know. So in this moment, you have, you know, you have to have responses to that. There isn't just the, that's wrong and we're going to fix it. It's, you know, how do we deal with it? How do we deal with the king wanting to do that? How do we take these particular perspectives, you know, how you walk through those particular issues without, as you say, uh, having to react to kind of a, uh, a violent dissent, but a conversational dissent, right? A thoughtful dissent. Yeah. And one of his challenges, yeah, that's right. One of his challenges was how to deal with the nuclear arms mm-hmm, race. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with that on a children's program? But that was a very real concern for Fred Rogers during the Reagan administration. Incredibly uh, of concern to him. So he develops this program, this week of programs, to showing King Friday as absolutely bumbling. And in this sense, King Friday is like Ronald Reagan mm-hmm. in, in Fred Rogers' mind. Uh, King Friday sees that one of his neighboring communities has just bought a thousand parts from a local manufacturer in the neighborhood. No, I'm sorry, a million parts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And King Friday thinks, sheesh, he must be building weapons. So he orders a million and one parts. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about an arms race. That's pretty good, right? It's a million and yeah, one. Yeah, it's pretty good. This upsets the neighborhood because in order to pay for a million and one parts, King Friday has to take money from his program to buy record players for schools in the neighborhood. Ah, so what's this about? Well, this is about Ronald Reagan taking money from social programs in order to build up the U.S. military, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you understand that only if you place it in context. Right. But that's what happens in this uh, series. And King Friday eventually becomes uh, is seen to be bumbling because it turns out that the neighboring community has bought a million parts so that it can build a bridge mm-hmm. between it communi- its community and other communities, including the neighborhood of Maple so, she's finally King Friday gets the message after Lady Aberlin and Lady Elaine Fairchild and some others uh, influence him and, and convince him of this. And he repents, as uh, King Friday can do, does often, and uh, he decides to take the money that he had planned to buy a million and one parts with, and he decides that he's going to buy all schools. Mm-hmm. Record players. It's a really powerful show, and Fred Rogers developed it in 1983, right at the height of the nuclear arms buildup during the during the Reagan administration. Mm-hmm. Wow! Talk about using something uh, political and putting in conversational terms for children. That's exactly what he did in 1983. Mm-hmm. A really powerful week of episodes. Yeah, the uh, they again. All your your particular choices are uh, seem to me again powerful, but they're powerful as much because you're able to show them in their context. And it is kind of an uh, again an odd thing to imagine the subversive nature of you know casting your your great uh, you know exalted leader as a bumbling 
um, buffoon frequently, but one, at least in this situation, and uh, as far as Friday goes, who does end up, you know, re- retracting and, and being, being wrong and, and, and realizing it. This is not usual for, for public leaders. Right. <laughs> exactly right. Especially our present one. He's not inclined to Oh, apologize. boy. No. Uh, but yeah, Fred Rogers never says in public that Ronald Reagan uh, is making huge errors in terms of uh, executing this armed service. But he will develop a subtle program about uh, King Friday wanting to buy a bunch of parts that he thinks he can turn into weapons. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wow. Well, and I'll say this, that a lot of people missed those messages on his program, right. too. I think some of the staff uh, missed the messages, too. And it does require careful attention to the contents. And I was, you know, I was lucky enough to be able to go back and look at those programs and then connect them to the wider context by doing uh, research of the politics of the day. You are my friend. You are special. It's time for our final break. This is You Are Special. When we return, we'll explore the fierce feminism of Lady Elaine Fairchild, who never tired of not being a lady. Stick around for what's so funny about peace, love, and Mr. Rogers on Interchange. In the nighttime, any time that you feel's the right time for a friendship with me, you see. Can you spell friend? F R I E N D. Special. Good. You are my friend, you're special to me, there's only one in this wonderful world, you are special. It's not so much what we have in this life that matters, it's what we do with what we have. The alphabet is fine but it's what we do with it that matters most. Making words like friend and love, that's what really matters. Welcome back. In our final segment, we'll talk gender in the land of make-believe with Lady Elaine, who Rogers regularly depicted as becoming an astronaut, a head news anchor, and doing many other so-called traditionally male jobs well before those glass ceilings were broken in reality. And more than that, she simply showed that being a woman has nothing to do with gendered expectations. Obviously, a show that lasts for a very long time continues to build on those themes and practices what it preaches. You know, and the practice itself is the key issue, right? The practice of talking, the practice of expressing a particular way, you know, the practice of being angry in a, in a, in a, constructive way versus a destructive way. These practices are what you're preaching, uh, but trying to understand them in, in, in context is, is difficult, obviously, in the moment, right? That takes reflection. Right. And you know, Rogers uh, had a sense that his legacy wasn't sure, mm-hmm. wasn't certain. And this came to him, especially during the Persian Gulf War, uh, when he 
imagine that many of the uh, young soldiers fighting in the Persian Gulf War had once watched his show. Mm -hmm. And it broke his heart to think that those young soldiers fighting on behalf of the government were leaving his teachings of peace behind Mm -hmm. and and, uh, agreeing to be intent on killing others. And that really broke his heart. And so at this point during the Persian Gulf War, uh, Rogers also became a great advocate of an idea that Senator John Heinz put into a bill. And the idea was uh, not to send single uh, soldier parents into battle mm-hmm. uh, because they would be separated from their children and their children would have difficult time finding care and not to send uh, parents who both of whom were soldiers mm-hmm. uh, into war. Uh, he thought that one of them should be able to stay home. And Rogers uh, lobbied for this. He thought it was a great idea. And um, he failed. Uh, mm-hmm. Senator Heinz's bill failed. And, and Rogers was, I don't want to say apoplectic, but he was incredibly disappointed mm-hmm. that, that legislation did not pass. Uh, you know, there was, this is related to the story of immigration, too. I mean, what upsets Rogers most in a child's life is the possibility that they will be separated from mm-hmm, mm-hmm. times of war or in any crisis. Uh, and it goes back to this this experience that he had with his younger son, Johnny, in Canada when and when the family lived there. Roger's family lived there. Rogers was working on a children's program in Canada at the time. And Johnny, his younger son, had to go into the hospital for hernia repair. It was a minor operation. And Rogers remembers this on occasion in front of public audiences, but not very often. And he recounts the story, and the story goes like this. Uh, Rogers and Joanne take Johnny to the hospital in Canada. They drop him off to the hospital staff, and the hospital staff just sort of takes him out of their arms and wheels Johnny down a long haul. And Rogers and Joanne are radically yeah, I'm going to use that word again, radically separated from Johnny at that point. And he is screaming and yelling as he's going down the hallway. There's no real time for a peaceful transition. There's no time for them to really comfort him while he's in the hospital or to help him prepare for this time in terms of going into surgery. He's just ripped out of their arms, as Rogers puts it. And it takes 45 minutes for him uh, to enter into surgery. And he's not calm at all during the whole time. And Rogers goes back to this experience and he sees it really as as the time that transformed Johnny's personality. Mm-hmm. Before this time, Rogers believes Roger uh, Johnny is in turn is developing health. Uh, but after this time he becomes uh psychologically problematic and spends some time in therapeutic care. And Rogers takes that moment and he uses it as a theoretical and experimental or experiential foundation for arguing against separating kids from their parents at any point, especially for a war. Mm-hmm. Well, that is that again. It's one of the complex uh, facets of of all his stories, in some sense, right? They're able to to reflect on that one thing, which is uh, the sort of abusive nature of culture or society in the first place you know you're in some ways always torn from from the people you care about or from from those relationships that should build 
uh, strength in the community. Like we're constantly torn towards work, uh, requirements of, of, of labor, especially for, uh, poor members of our communities who work multiple jobs. Where are those relationships of love when, when there's constant stress, constant pain, constant worry? Uh, this is, this is an issue throughout our culture, right? We sort of grow troubled children yes. in the, in this, just in the simple fact of living in this particular culture. Now that doesn't exempt other cultures, their own problems, but this one right. is clear. Uh, now I, I don't, I don't recall reading the word capitalism in the book. Uh, you, you mentioned consumerism and mm-hmm. obviously Fred Rogers is not an anti-capitalist per se, um, being a, a capitalist of a sort himself, right? He, you know, he's certainly wealthy and well off. Um, you know, he's had his own production company to, to sort of ma- maintain his own, um, uh, independence over his image and his work. So there's obviously a kind of conflict there, right? Because the system itself creates those damages that he's trying yes. to work against. And Rogers did work against that. And in his writings, he often writes about the need. And this might show some of his class bias. He writes about the need for a parent, one of the parents, if there are two. Uh, and he usually assumes that there are two early on. There's a need for one of the parents to stay home. Uh, There's not a need for another car. There's not a need for a bigger house. There's not a need for a two-car garage. There's not a need for a swimming pool. The real need is for a parent to stay home full-time and care for their child or their children. And Rogers uh, talks about this in his books quite a bit. And eventually he comes around and recognizes that, okay, so some women do need to go off to work. Uh, but in those cases, maybe the man can stay home full time and care for the children. But he's constantly pushing parents to stay home full time with their children. Uh, it might reflect early on, at least, his class bias that there wasn't a need for two incomes in a family. In fact, that just wasn't the case, mm-hmm. uh, even early on when he was writing these things. But he did come around to recognize that parents did sometimes need both incomes for their survival, uh, if only, and maybe a little bit of flourishing. And he recognized that. But at the same time, he constantly pushed for parents to stay home as much as they possibly could with their children. Mm-hmm. That was a really important issue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, uh, the, he, yeah, go ahead. He a lot. You know, he didn't mirror that, I should say. Mm-hmm. He was at work a lot. And Joanne was the one who stayed home with the child, with the children, right? Mm-hmm. So Rogers himself didn't do that. But what's interesting is that in his work, he's showing up at children's homes in the middle of the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And their father is at work. And I'm speaking as if this is the late 60s mm-hmm. and early 70s. Most of the times, their father is off at work, and here, here into their homes is this man. <laughs> And he's coming, and and he looks like their father. He's about the same age as their father, and he's asking to be their friend. So he's giving them a different model there, right? And not only that, but this man is ironing. He's ironing underwear. Uh, he's cooking. He's baking cookies, and he's doing all these peculiar things that their own fathers might not be doing. So while he's calling for somebody to stay home with the children, he's also uh, modeling for fathers to take up uh, tasks and chores that they might not otherwise do in order to care for their children.
This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Mr. Rogers with guest Michael Long, author of the 2015 book Peaceful Neighbor, Discovering the Countercultural Mr. Rogers. I wanted you to talk a little bit before I don't want to I don't want to lose because we're we're going to run short on time here and I want to be sure you talk a little bit about um, Lady Elaine Fairchild. I enjoyed reading about that character, right? And and the kind of she's a, obviously a complex character herself. She's she's strong. Uh, she's willful. She's independent. She's you know whatever terms you want to use, and you have to be careful you know exactly how you, you use these terms because she's not exactly the most likable character, right? <laughs> Lady <laughs> Elaine Fairchild uh, is a difficult character for everyone else, but she's clearly the most independent and least um, gender. Um, I was trying to try to avoid this, you know, uh, because I don't want to say that she needs to be feminine, but this is her character is a sort of against a norm of feminists or uh, not feminists against the norm of femaleness, I suppose. In fact, she says, and these are exact words, I'm tired of being a lady. Go on around the museum. Swing around the museum. There you go. Have a nice swing museum. Oh, I want to talk with Handyman Negri. I wonder where he is. Handyman Negri. Oh, there. There you are at last. Well, I got here as quickly as I could, but King Fry wanted me to do something for him, and I just couldn't get here any sooner. You're lucky. You're always getting to do things. Well, now how can I help you? I'm tired of being a lady. I want to be a handyman and do things all the time. Well, but Lady Elaine, I mean, ladies do things. What? Besides washing and ironing and sweeping and scrubbing? Oh, it's true. They do, they do those things. But, but ladies have jobs, too, you know. What? I mean, ladies are, are, are teachers. And they're doctors and storekeepers. And, and they're mothers. Mm-hmm. And, and they're all kinds of workers. Oh, look at Mrs. Saunders. Uh, she, she's a teacher. Teacher. That's a great idea. If I were a teacher, uh-huh. I could get other people to do what I told them to do. Oh. Do this. Run over there and oh. write oh. this down and add oh. this up. And... No. Oh, slow down. Slow down. What? Just a no, no, no. You know, the best teachers try to find out what their students like to do. Oh. I think I'd rather be a bus driver. <laughs> <laughs> she was difficult. She was strong-willed. She was based on uh, Fred Rogers' sister. Hmm. Uh, and I guess Fred found her that way. But he also gives uh, Lady... Uh, I get them mixed up sometimes. Lady Aberlin, Lady. He also gives Lady Elaine this really uh, important role in terms of flipping gender expectations. Mm-hmm. So... Lady Elaine uh, flies the planet purple. She's an astronaut. Mm-hmm. She does this more than a decade before Sally Ride becomes an astronaut in the United States. Uh, Lady Elaine becomes the head of a television station on the major, in the neighborhood of Make Believe. And this is a couple years before Barbara, Barbara Waters mm-hmm. uh, becomes a, an anchor for CBS, I think it was. Uh, Lady Elaine... Uh, takes on huge roles. She, she becomes the head of a museum in the neighborhood of make-believe. And this is when museum directors were largely male. 
Fred Rogers gives her all these types types of roles that are typically uh, occupied by men, and it's my mouth drops every time mm-hmm. I, I I watched her assume a new, largely male role, a male role in wider society. Anyway, there's another key factor uh, to Lady Elaine, and that's the, the clear fact that she's not beautiful in any traditional sense of the word. And Fred Rogers develops a program and, and several to this issue. And Lady Elaine frets about not being beautiful like Lady Aberlin, mm-hmm. who is traditionally beautiful, gorgeous. And so when the two of them look together, it's jolting for the viewer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when Lady Aberlin and Lady Elaine stand next to each other, it's absolutely jolting. And, and Lady Elaine frets about this. And she wants to cover her face with a red handkerchief so so people don't see her nose and her face. And the message that eventually comes out, uh, which is unpredictable given what Fred has been teaching his whole program, is that what's most essential is not what's on the outside, not, not, not what's on Lady Elaine's face, but what's on the inside. It's such a good feeling to know you're alive. It's such a happy feeling you're growing inside. And when you wake up ready to say, I think I'll make a snappy new day. It's such a good feeling. A very good feeling, the feeling you know That I'll be back when the day is new And I'll have more ideas for you And you'll have things you'll want to talk about I will too That's our show. We'll close with It's Such a Good Feeling, a last song from Fred Rogers. Thanks to Michael Long for joining us to discuss the countercultural Fred Rogers. Long's book, Peaceful Neighbor, was published in 2015 by John Knox Press. Next time on Interchange, militant labor leader and radical pacifist A.J. Musty. At one time known throughout the world as the American Gandhi, A.J. Musty is probably best known now, if at all, for his leadership of the peace movement in the post-war era but he was also one of the most influential labor organizers of the early 20th century. Leela Danielson, author of American Gandhi, A.J. Musty, and the History of Radicalism in the 20th Century, joins us. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon edited today's program with assistance from Kayla Neely. Wes Martin is executive producer. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB.